now it's recording. Hello, 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 hello. What do I say? Oh, <laughs> sorry, it's been a while. Uh, even when birth or pregnancy takes you down a route that wasn't your preferred route to start with, it doesn't mean that you have to get out of the car and let someone else drive it. Like you are still very yeah. much. I think that. even more so that that is even more yeah. important then, isn't it? Than yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, very important conversation to have. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Talk Birthy with Us, the weekly podcast hosted by me, Ellie. And me, Louisa. We are both birth and postnatal doulas. We are antenatal educators, hypnobirthing teachers. We are birth trauma practitioners. And we are the co-founders of the one and only, the amazing, the unstoppable new birth club. We're here to talk birthy with you. And in this week's episode, we are joined by our delight of a guest, Megan Roster, the founder of BirthEd. Megan is a hypnobirthing teacher and she has supported thousands of families to prepare confidently and positively for their birthing days. In Megan's words, her expertise really lies in helping women and families navigate the current maternity services, making that care work for them and putting them in the driving seat of all decisions when it comes to their pregnancies and births. We have taken a bird's eye view of high risk labels that exist, talked about the risk as a whole and the language that surrounds that, and really given a load of helpful information, resources, tips and tools for anyone navigating a high-risk pregnancy or labels of a high risk relating to their birth. This one is going to be so valuable to anyone who is currently pregnant and birthing within this system or who is preparing to do so. So settle in and come and talk birthy with us because it's going to be a good one. We just wanted to remind you that if you are liking what you're hearing on the poddy, you can access our support in many different ways. One way is our individual pick and mix hypnobirthing workshops. Pick and mix hypnobirthing workshops? What's that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. <laughs> what we have done is taken a full antenatal and hypnobirthing course, everything that you could possibly need to know about birth so that you can prepare confidently for it. We've taken it and we've deconstructed it into bite-sized chunks so that every parent can take control over what information they're consuming during their pregnancy and prepare in their way. I love that. Me too. And another way that you can access our support is through our doula services. My favourite service of all times is our most accessible doula package, which is our pocket doula support. Pocket doula, you say? What's that? Well, I'll tell you all about it. 
Um, it is our remote doula support that you can access from anywhere in the world, meaning that you can have uh, educational support, emotional support, as well as some practical support that we can guide you through. Essentially, it's your birth coach that you can access from your phone, email, Zoom, whatever device you decide to use. We are here for you along the, your journey and we may even be with you during your labour. To find out all about our workshops, our pocket doula services and all other support packages, you can head over to www.newbirthclub.com. Oh yeah. Weekly um, catch up time. Hey, right. how long has it been? Can you stop fucking jet setting everywhere? She's been off here, mm-hmm. she's been off there. Fucking hell, man. I have, and I make no excuses for it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I've i been to Spain mm-hmm. with the fam. So, the four of us, we went to Spain, we drunk sangria. Have we caught up about Spain already? Hey, mate. We haven't, have we? Hey, so, mate. yeah. So, drunk sangria, went to the beach. I am brown AF. Went there for a week, came back. Two days after I came back, what did I do? Set off again. Oh, yes. Didn't even get to see you in between times. Wait, did I? No, you didn't because I got back. No, did we? No, we've we've seen each other on camera because we've had consultations, back-to-back consultations. Galore. Consultation galore. Consultations galore. Back today. Lovely. I love a long weekend girls trip away. God, this is just bloody stunning. It was wonderful. A lot less sunbathing, though, in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Did go to the naked sauna, though. Oh, hello. She got her baps out, did she? Went to Berlin, got her baps out. All of it out. Yeah. Full frontal nudity. Nakey, bakey. (laughs) Was it liberating? I I, I was saying to my husband, I said, this is, it was actually really like liberating. I felt very powerful being able to do that. At the beginning, though, I felt weird. Yeah. You would. How do you stop yourself from staring and checking it out? I think it's just a a natural kind of curiosity of the humankind. Oh, that's what you look like naked. Oh, that's what you look like naked. And people would have been checking you out as well. Oh, God, I hate the thought of that. Embrace it. Enough about me. Mm. How have you been? I've been, you know, fine. I mean, probably not quite as good as yourself, but fine. Um, It was obviously half term, which was delightful. Came to an end, which was even more delightful. It's been busy. I mean, we've had consultation after consultation after consultation. Babies have been born, so pools have been collected. We go back on call this week. We go back on call this week, which is very exciting. And also, my liver just needs a little bit of a break, if I'm honest. I've been a little bit busy. I'm, yeah, I've got to agree. I've got to agree. Berlin did me in. Mm. Mm. I don't have that excuse. I've just been social. I've been very social, which is unlike me. I love it. You go, you go, you little social butterfly. Anything else? Like, what are we missing? I feel like we're missing something, but no. 
Don't think so. Right, great. Well, in that case, shall we get on with the poddy waddy? Let's get on with lip poddy waddy. Fabulous. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's really, you know, I can never stop talking about birth and (laughs) babies. So, yeah, I'm always delighted. Can I ask you, Megan, to just do like a bit of a introduction of like who you are, what you do, where people can find you? I'm pretty sure everyone who listens to our podcast is definitely going to know who you are. But just in case. Yeah, of course. Um, So my name is Megan Rossiter um, and I'm the founder of an organisation called Birth Ed, uh, which I set up sort of as I suppose was kind of the antithesis to what existed now seven years ago in terms of kind of hypnobirthing preparation and antenatal preparation where it very much felt like you either had to be kind of like breathing your pain-free water birth at home um, or you had to kind of really really go and do exactly what the system was telling you to do and there just wasn't back then this kind of happy medium in between of like okay you're giving birth in the system so what can we do to make the most of it and how can hypnobirthing tools and techniques kind of work together with with your body and with the kind of decisions that you're going to have to make um to hopefully I think provide people with like balanced nuanced birth preparation um and so yeah I started that after the birth of my first son who is now seven and a half um and prior to that I had done my midwifery training so I was working in hospitals um on labor wards in the community um supporting people in that way uh I sort of actually set it up on a bit of a kind of like it being a a side thing that I would do um but very, very quickly realized, number one, that it fitted much better around my family. I didn't have to work Christmas and nights, um, but also that I was just able to reach so many more women and support so many more families doing what I do now than I could working in a system that challenged me in ways that I didn't particularly want to be challenged, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah. it's so interesting that you have that insight of obviously working within the maternity system and the services and then obviously doing what you do now because you are you you speak you know a lot about birth rights you speak a lot about the challenges that you know people who are accessing maternity care through the NHS services kind of face um do you find that difficult or do you find that like I've got kind of the benefit of both I can see both sides so I, uh, for me, I'm not a registered midwife. I don't work in the NHS. Um, and so for me, the insight and having that as the kind of first place that I was introduced to, you know, so I didn't have kids when I started that training. Um, I went into it basically completely naively. I was interested in it and thought it sounded like something that I would be good at, but I didn't have any understanding of the like culture and politics and stuff that existed in maternity services. Um, And they have definitely, I would say, got worse over the kind of past decade since I first started. Um, But having that insight into kind of what it feels like to work within it, I think has the balance that I feel like it's given me is that, you know, I've got plenty of friends that are still working in the system itself. And I know that they are 
incredible people who are working incredibly hard in very difficult circumstances and really the vast majority of the time have the very very best interests of the families that they're looking after at heart and I feel like sometimes um, engaging in these conversations when we talk about how not great the maternity system is in 2024 it can suddenly become like a midwife obstetrician bashing thing of like oh they're all evil they're all out to completely trip you over and ruin your birth um and I think having been that person and I can look back and I can see things that I did when I didn't know any better in practice and I'm like, oh my god I can't believe that I sort of like told somebody to push in that way or I sort of like was involved in a conversation where you I don't know rolled your eyes at a decision that somebody was making and it's like actually it's only when you know better that you can do yeah. better um yeah. and so having that experience and that understanding I think enables me to support people in a way that helps them get the best out of the maternity system rather than feeling like they've got to go in and have this like huge battle because I think some people are like fine to do that and they are really feeling very ballsy very empowered able to go in and be like this is what's happening I'm in charge everybody just do what I'm saying but there are a lot of people and I would include myself in that 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 the thought of doing that makes them feel like desperately uncomfortable and then it sort of feels like well you either do that or you just do as you're told and I think that there is like a really really big space in the middle of like actually teasing out what you need from the maternity system in a way that doesn't have to feel really confronting and uncomfortable that can feel like safe and that you can feel confident to do um and that I would say is where my like real expertise lies is is showing people how to find that within themselves yeah Yeah. and you do it so well Megan you do it so so well. well thank you (laughs) where people can find you and about your course and stuff so you can follow me on instagram if you like uh, graphic birth snaps i'm at birth underscore ed on instagram um and you can join antenatal courses hypnobirthing courses birth ed method version um at www.birth-ed.co.uk um for yeah online birth practice what we decided that we would talk about today was exactly as you were saying, Megan, we were going to talk about high risk gestations, but like getting that diagnosis, being given that label, and then like how to navigate that label and how to make the most of your maternity care. Yeah. And I think what, you know, what anybody listening to this is going to re- probably realize very, very quickly is that the number of people that are ticking a box that categorizes them as, I'm going to put this in inverted commas, you won't be able to see me if you listen to a podcast, but high risk um, is going up and up and up and up and up. Like the hoops that we have to jump through to come out the end of pregnancy without a box ticked, there is more and more hoops. And like the box that we have to fit in is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, the parameters for diagnosis are changing. Like there is just so much that we we have to get through to even get to full-term pregnancy or even kind of estimated due date to get there and not have ticked a box yet. And probably the majority of people that haven't ticked a box by that point will probably tick a box in the last few weeks of pregnancy or in labor itself. And you're like, oh, okay. So if you've managed to get to giving birth to a baby and the placenta and the first 24 hours postnatally and not having ticked a box, I I think the kind of specific figure that exists is that it's 20% of women, but I would probably say it's like, it's less. 
We call, them, less we call them the unicorn. The Unicorns. <laughs> because you just don't see many of them that are get I mean, the issue is really, I suppose, that exactly like you say, there are such a small proportion of, of women or birthing people who are not filling the categories of some high-risk label. For the rest of those unicorns who don't fit the bill of that high-risk label, they're still categorised as low-risk. So that word risk remains regardless. Yeah. And the word risk is like, it's the first place that we fall down, right? Because you hear the word risk. If somebody calls me high risk, I feel like a time bomb that is walking around. I'm literally going to explode at any moment. Um, And actually, in the grand scheme of things, we know that for the vast, vast majority of people, even with these boxes ticked, that giving birth is very safe. Like all of the research that we've got, all of the guidelines that we've got say the first thing that, you know, if somebody is okay, has a high BMI, again, I'm going to do that in inverted commas because that's problematic in itself. But the first thing that is in the like RCAG, which is the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists guidelines, um, is that you should tell women that most women, the vast majority of women with a high BMI have an uncomplicated pregnancy and birth, but they will spend the entirety of their pregnancy being told that they are at risk. It's a very risky thing for them to be doing. Even like the fact that they've got pregnant is so risky. And you're like, it's it's not. Literally the first thing that's there is saying that actually for the vast majority of people, it is very, very safe. And that goes for almost everything. Like, mm gestational diabetes age whatever it is there are a very 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 small number of pregnancy conditions or pregnancy illnesses that are actually very 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 complex and potentially yeah what you would describe as risky um and risk is something that we encounter every single day if you are getting in a car and you are driving to work if you are eating a grape like all of these things yeah. carry risk associated with them but we're not constantly describing things as like risky or high risk I prefer the kind of the term chance like there is yeah. always a chance of something happening and what is that chance um and I can chat about risk for yeah days and days and days but that definitely the kind of the language around it is probably the first first issue I think we've yeah. got with maternity yeah. care because it goes for both you if you're pregnant somebody's called you high risk we're like that's it we're basing all of our decisions on the fact that we now think we are a walking risk but Mm. also from your care providers right if they see your notes and it says on there you know there's indications high risk of or they are a high risk pregnancy we're afraid to offer care if they're asking for something else we're like oh that sounds like that sounds really terrifying or or what's going to go wrong and the focus is always on what's going to go wrong not actually there's a very 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 high chance that this is going to be completely fine yeah 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 there's lots of different things that we could go into as to why everybody sees kind of you know birth as being like this sort of very dangerous definitely kind of highly medicalized sort of event but the language that is used at every kind of turn when you become pregnant is what reinforces that message. Um, And that, you know, can impact mindset and decision-making so much because if you start off from a place of risk, it's exactly like you're saying, you're like, well, I already started on, you know, like on the edge. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting as well, like for the person who is actually pregnant, 
navigating that, navigating that system, because you are so heavily emotionally involved in the process, those words carry a huge weight in like how you are then going to feel about yourself, going to feel about your body, your ability to, to grow and then birth your baby. It's going to carry a huge weight for a partner or like extra family members, because once again, they care so deeply about you. So once you have that label and you share that label, everyone will start to view you differently unless they aren't so emotionally attached to yourselves for for example, us, we would be able to actually talk to someone about their label and um, and actually rationalize that and change the language and be like, okay, so look, the chances of X, Y, Z happening are actually this, like you, you're the only person who can decide whether a risk is high or not. A label of high risk might not mean anything if you don't actually feel that that risk is that high. Yeah, absolutely. It it brings, there's so many of those boxes that you're saying that can be ticked that actually the risk is so low. They're like, well, the chance of something happening is so, so low. Yeah. And I think that's probably like the next place to go is that if somebody is talking to you about you being at increased risk of literally anything, um, (laughs) is understanding like what is the next question to ask and the next question to ask generally is like what what risk are we talking about and in comparison to who so there's sort of two things that's worth explaining here so the first is the way that risk is presented so women will often be told things like oh you know well now you're twice as likely to um, I don't know, develop gestational diabetes, you're twice as likely to have a shoulder dystocia, you're twice as likely to experience a poor outcome, um, which is when we talked about what you were just saying about um, the, the language of risk, it's emotional language, right? When somebody is told they're twice as likely that something bad is going to happen to them or to their baby, uh, hello, anybody with any sense is just going to agree to whatever it is that is being suggested to prevent this from happening. But it's twice as likely, three times as likely. In my head, I go, right, 10% to 20%. Fuck, that's absolutely terrifying. Um, And so the way, when something is presented in that way, we would describe that as something called relative risk. So it is in relation to another statistic. Now, if we don't have what that original statistic is, then it is essentially completely irrelevant information. what we want, the way that we would like information to be presented is something that we call absolute risk. So absolute risk means the actual statistics. Um, so rather than saying double, we say it goes from a chance of one in a thousand to a chance of two in a thousand. Uh, or it goes from a chance of two in a hundred thousand to four in a hundred thousand. And suddenly we're going, okay, so yes, it is double, but it's 0.02%. So Mm. actually, does that feel risky to me? Or does it feel actually very safe to me? And it's not for me or you guys or anybody else to determine what that risk then feels like, exactly as you're just saying. So the way that... um, the way that we interpret risk will be influenced by so many things. It will be influenced by previous experiences of giving birth, the 
the thing that is being suggested, whether that feels like uh, appropriate to us or whether it doesn't. There's so many factors that will influence how that risk feels to us. And so that is the way that we ideally want information to be presented to us. Annoyingly, it doesn't always exist in that way. Like it, it's it that only exists if there's if there has been like a decent bit of research done on a decent number of people. And that's the next question that you kind of want to be asking is okay, so you're saying there is an increased risk, but what is this based on? Um, and also increased in comparison to who? So frequently, this is a, co- a conversation that's just been coming up time and time again for me recently, is that Women have experienced, say, third degree tear in their first pregnancy. So if you're listening and you don't know what that means, basically the tissue of the perineum, it's quite common to have a tear to either the skin or some of the kind of muscle tissue um, in the perineum. Very occasionally it can extend downwards towards your anal sphincter. And so if it reaches the anal sphincter that's a third degree tear if it includes the whole anal sphincter that's called a fourth degree tear um and we know and again this in itself depends on which bit of research you're actually looking at but for first time mums that is around six percent of births a woman will experience a third or fourth degree tear in in their second birth, um, they might be told that now they have got a three times chance, they're three times more likely to have a severe tear in their second birth. So if you're saying that to me, right, I'm three times more likely, the math in my head goes, okay, so 18% of us will have a severe tear. That is not what it is. It is still a six, maybe six to seven percent chance of women in their second birth who had a third or fourth degree tear in their first birth will have another one in their second birth. Often they are given information that compares them to second time mums who didn't have a third degree tear in their first birth. And the risk of that is around 2%, maybe a little bit under 2%. So they are three times as likely compared to a group of women that didn't have a third degree tear. However, the variable that we're looking at there is not something that you have any control over. You cannot move from the group of women that did have a third degree tear to a group of women that didn't have a third degree tear. So the information that we're being presented with is absolutely useless because there is no, there is no decision that we can make that is going to reduce that, change that risk um, other than planning a cesarean birth, which is often a decision that somebody might make if now the kind of 6% risk sounds too high for them to consider a vaginal birth. But when it is presented as three times, we go, oh my God, well, I had one in the first birth. So I'm now three times more likely to have one the second time. Whereas actually you are exactly as likely as you were the first time. You're not three Mm -hmm. times more likely, you're the same amount of likely. Um, And so it's things like that, that if we don't know to ask these questions, we make these like mathematical assumptions in our head of like, okay, so basically one in five of us are going to have a severe tear. And you go, Mm -hmm. "Mm, actually, it's kind of closer to one in 20, (laughs) Um, one in 21 of us that are going to have a severe tear. And so it's it's those kind of questions that you need to ask, which is really hard to do when you don't understand research yeah and you're so right and also it's so much to get your head around isn't it because we've already spoken about first of all I'm starting from a place of shit I'm at risk like that's so then already my uh, ability to sort of logically you know 
rationalize things is somewhat impaired because I'm coming at this from an emotional place because emotive language is being used. And then there's that thing of like, right, you've given me maybe relative risk of, of my chances are doubled. My risk is doubled. Some people are going to be going 50%. Like, that's how I would go. If I'm double, like, I'm, I'm already at 50%. Like, if I started from zero and it's double, 50%. And then you go, right, okay, now, actually, I would like the absolute or the actual risk. So, actually, I need to ask about that. And then also, I need to ask about sort of, you know, the maybe the reliability of where they're getting their statistics from and also who is included within that sort of data group that you're talking about there's just it's just yeah. so much isn't it without the the reliable information and the, the the support for you to navigate this it's really fucking hard to do it's really hard to do even when we like the three of us sitting here if we were to get pregnant and we were given a label despite the fact that we know all of this stuff we would still have to take a few steps back and be like, yeah. ooh, yeah. let me sit down and really think about this. And yeah. it takes a lot to do that. And what, like, even just this morning, I was supporting somebody, and this is, uh, you know, they're not going to mind me saying, because this is a story that I repeat time and time and time again, where um, there was a comp complication, like it could have been a third degree tear, it could have been a bleed or something that happened in their first birth. Um, and then you take it back and you go, Okay, so you had an induction of labor, they broke the waters, baby was in a difficult position, everything stopped and stored and slowed down, you had the hormone drip put up, you had an epidural, you had a forceps, and then you go, okay, so are we surprised that there was a severe tear or a severe bleed? Like, it, there are things that you can totally explain. And then when people get to grips with that, they can look and they can go, okay, so if I hadn't, if that hadn't happened, then it's quite likely that the tear might not have happened or the malposition might not have happened or the bleed might not have happened. Um, so if I can avoid those things, then I'm also reducing the chances of it happening second time. And this is like, research doesn't even go there. Like it does not even get that that nuance. It just goes these people versus these people. Um, and so, yeah, having somebody with that kind of knowledge and that, as you said before, the kind of not being emotionally involved in the, obviously we're emotionally involved, but we're not actually like directly influenced by what you choose to do or how things actually what the actual kind of outcome of the birth is I mean obviously we want it to be a positive outcome but in terms of like how the baby is born or what choice you're making it doesn't it doesn't matter to me I just imagine it doesn't matter to you guys like what you choose to do it's about making sure that you have got the right information and the nuanced conversation and the kind of the balance and the person to bounce that off can be so so helpful um in understanding just how nuanced a conversation it is and because as you mentioned already that sometimes when we get research you can you can quite simply ask the question number one how good is the research like if you go oh actually it's from 1990 and it was on 20 women who all gave birth in hospital and you're like in 2024 planning a home birth it's the sort of question of like okay so is that actually relevant to the mm. decision that I'm trying to make um and it's and, and you can even ask the question like how relevant is it to me because similarly if you're going this is the chance of tearing versus this is the chance of tearing but both groups of people were laying on bed in hospital and there was no balance for whether they had an epidural or an induction or something mm. and you're thinking okay well I'm planning a spontaneous labor at home how relevant is that how relevant is that to you? And it might not be very relevant 
at all. Um, so, and you you don't have to be able to read a research paper. Like, don't feel like you've got to go away and read them. There are some fantastic resources, an amazing website called Evidence-Based Birth, which does a very good job of like literally unpacking this information. Um, there's another good uh, resource, which is called Cochrane Reviews, which you can go into and they are slightly more wordy in that they are aimed at healthcare providers, but there's usually a bit of a kind of layperson explanation of the findings. Um, and they review like you, if you were researching home birth, for example, it would take loads and loads of bits of research into home birth and kind of pull together the outcomes and the information that has come of it. Um, so you can look for things like that. Systematic reviews are often quite an easy way to kind of break it down without having to, somebody's already done the, is this quality research, is this relevant kind of thing. Um, and if you're really stuck, you can just say to your midwife or your obstetrician, can you, can you take me through the research that you're referring to so that I can work out how relevant it is to me? Um, and they don't don't always think that your midwife, or your doctor is going to have these statistics and this research like to hand. It, there is no way that any midwife or doctor can retain every statistic for everything in their hand. But they should always be willing to, if you are asking for it, be like, yes, that's absolutely fine. Give me a week. I will go away and I will find it and in our next appointment or over the phone or we can arrange an appointment to take a look and chat things through. Um, I think sometimes we don't want to be uh, a bit annoying or yeah. un unhelpful. Um, and so, but knowing that you can ask those questions or that you can just ask to be pointed in the direction of research just gives, just opens up that conversation and pointedly says like I'm actually taking this decision quite seriously and I want to have a nuanced conversation about it and often that often that's all you need to then actually start having a nuanced conversation sometimes you need a bit more but that's a good kind of starting point yeah definitely and I think I think that that goes because we often say you know like how I was saying before it's just such a lot isn't it to, to keep in your mind and you know you just you're just pregnant like you shouldn't have to like deal with all of this stuff um, but we we often do say, you know, as sort of like nerdy or maybe odd it might look, take in like a notebook with these like questions that you've written down before so that you've got something really clear. And it's not only that you're going to get the information that you want and that you need to be able to like for you to make that decision, but it also, it, you know, the way that we interact as human beings we're so kind of reactive to one another. If you start exactly like you just said, Megan, if you start sort of saying, you know, I'm a person who is really considered, I really want this information, I'm ready to have the nuanced conversation and I and I need to have that in order to make my own decision. Usually the person that you're saying that to is going to react. They're going to be like, oh, okay, so this isn't just going to be, you know, maybe another standard appointment of the day. Maybe I'm going to have to take a little bit longer. And, you know, whilst the maternity services are really, really stretched and midwives are working really hard to be able to get through everybody that they need to get through, you deserve way more than just like, this is the standard response. 10 minutes is all you've got. If we can't fit it in 10 minutes, then we can't fit it in. You know, you are only going to be pregnant once, twice, three times, well, as many times as you'd like to be. But each one is such an important experience in your life and your birth experience, you know, is going to be impacted by these conversations you're having during pregnancy that to stand, you know, up and be like, I know that this is really awkward. You know, maybe just acknowledge it. 
I know this is really awkward. I know that it might just sound like a bit like over the top, but I really need to see these papers to be able to make this decision. You might you might find that you you might find that you ask these questions and you are met with, oh great, <laughs> somebody that wants to engage in their care that isn't just like gonna take exactly what the guidelines are saying, but they want to just actually be involved in the decisions that yeah. are being made. And I would hope that the majority of the time you might be met with that response. Sometimes you might not be. Sometimes you might be met with an eye roll or feeling like that conversation is really being shut down. And you can you can gauge that pretty quickly, right? Like just your emotional intelligence can read the room and be like, is this person going to have this conversation with me or are they not? In my second pregnancy where I have had um, scans with the fetal medicine department and had this conversation with this woman who was actually head of obstetrics um, at, at the time. And... Um, basically I could feel I could just feel the vibe of the conversation and you know I asked a question you know what what would be the recommendation if x y or z happened she was, she was like oh you know we'll just induce you at 38 weeks and I was like oh right will you okay fine and from that I was like oh, I'm just not even I'm not even interested in having a conversation with this person because I feel like I'll have to argue or feel like I would I'll be made to feel like really vulnerable and I'm not interested in feeling that so I was like oh, okay fine came out my husband was like why did you just agree to an induction at 38 weeks I was like oh I didn't I'm just gonna have that conversation with somebody else yeah. um and there will always be better and worse people to have these conversations yeah. with so if it's during pregnancy um if you've got a midwife that you trust and you've kind of met already then you can ask to see that midwife um there are also quite a lot of hospitals will have a role that is called a consultant midwife which is different to a consultant doctor um and they are generally pretty good at um supporting kind of physio physiology or out of guidelines care um so anytime you're being suggested something if you if what you want doesn't automatically tick the, the entire list of guidelines that are being recommended to you they can be a really helpful person to go and have hopefully a much more supportive conversation with about what it is that you're asking for or even if it's just that you don't know what you want yet but you just want the opportunity to explore it with somebody that's really going to take the time to understand why you want to explore it and what it is that you want from your birth experience um and so it can be worth asking to see somebody like that um and generally those people and if it's not them there might be a birth choices midwife it might be the kind of deputy head of midwifery or the head of midwifery sometimes there's like I don't know a link consultant for a home birth team or something who is much more kind of understanding and supportive and I promise you if you ask a midwife who you should talk to they will know like it's you know in the hospital you know who is the person to talk to if you want x y or z um, and so you're just asking for referrals to those people those people then their signature on a bit of paper tends to carry quite a lot of weight so mm -hmm. if you can get like a birth plan or birth preferences or or even like a pregnancy plan or a postnatal plan whatever it is you're kind of asking for if that is written quite clearly into your notes and signed off by this person and I and I hate that this happens like I hate that you can get a some specific person's signature and suddenly you're taken seriously but in the realities of like maternity culture that's how it works um and so if you can get that in your notes it then just saves you so much faff mm. turning up in labor being like oh actually it was agreed that I could use a birth center by this person I don't need to be on a labor ward 
versus turning up and not having had that conversation before and then trying to convince a triage midwife while you're in labor with whichever midwife is coordinating that day it just becomes again so many more hoops that you don't want to be jumping through when you're in labor you're feeling vulnerable um so yeah that's definitely a kind of good tip if you're trying to navigate things as we've already said that you know the the level of risk, really, what you're willing to accept is on an individual basis. So what I might consider to be a really high chance of something, Louisa might not, or you might, you know, we're all going to have very different views. And it ultimately is you are the person who gets to make the decision on that. Um, but sometimes, like we've already discussed, that doesn't interact with the way that general policy or protocol within that trust that you're accessing your care goes. So if if you have a uh, caregiver who potentially, you know, you're saying, I'm I'm okay with accepting this level of risk or chance, um, and this is what I would choose to do. And I understand that it's kind of, you know, not uh, standard, um, but this is still what my choice is. Sometimes what we hear is that that is met with opposition and almost a bit of like, well, what do we do then? Because how are we supposed to support you if you're not going to do what we're telling you should do. And I wonder if there are any pearls of wisdom that you might have in terms of how to navigate that basically. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. That is where the kind of conversations with a consultant midwife or somebody come in really handy because there will be somebody in that trust that is going to put your needs first and is going to be able to help facilitate what it is you're asking for. If it's... um almost that like the service provision doesn't exist in you know I don't know there the birth center is closed and there is no birth center and you want to give birth in a birth center like it sometimes it is a case of like okay well there is ultimately like they can't ultimately open a birth center if they don't have enough staff to open a birth center so sometimes it is going to be led and influenced by service provision it might be that you can change trusts and that another like similarly I know that some trusts won't facilitate a breech birth like a vaginal breech birth they just don't really do it um they feel like they don't have enough skilled facilitators skilled midwives skilled obstetricians to support it um and situations like that you're probably your best bet is actually if you are close enough to another trust or another place that might be able to support you better, um, then that would definitely be something like worth exploring. And it can feel quite daunting, especially at the end of pregnancy to be like, oh my God, do I really want to change um, hospitals at this stage? But I have seen like really positive outcomes from people that have done that they've just been like look there's everybody that I've met this trust has just not been supportive of me but there is another one that's another 10 minute drive away and actually you can speak to somebody there and they go and it feels suddenly like okay (laughs) this feels so much better um so it can be worth exploring that obviously if you live in like northern Scotland you don't necessarily have (laughs) the option of doing that um so there are also really really brilliant organizations like Birth Rights which is a charity and aims the Association of Improvement to Maternity Services um, that both have helplines and they're really, really good at, um, they can literally help you draft letters to the head of midwifery. So if it feels like actually it needs to become 
like a more formal way of making sure that your needs are met and that your choices are facilitated. You can go down a more formal route. You can get in touch with the Maternity Voices Partnership. There, All hospitals will have something called PALS, the Patient Advisory Liaison Service, if you need to make like more of a more formal complaint. Um, or you can ask for it to be escalated to the head of midwifery um, so that then plans should be put in place to facilitate what it is that you're after. But yeah, I'm not going to lie and say that it's always totally easy to have this kind of met. And the other thing that sometimes people sometimes face is that they have had all of these conversations in pregnancy and then they turn up in labour. Somebody finds another little hoop. Oh, it was it was fine if your waters hadn't broken, but now your waters are broken, so you can't do it anymore. Um, and that is where having somebody with you that is confident to advocate for you is like an absolute game changer. So having a doula or making sure that your partner is kind of confident in themselves to be able to ask the questions that we've been talking about um, and to be able to really communicate your wishes. Um, or if it's not, it might not be your partner. It might be that you feel like actually your partner is not going to be able to fulfill that role. So actually, is it that you've got another family member or a friend or can you employ a doula or somebody to enable that role to be filled by somebody um, can be, again, like an absolute game changer if there are twists and turns thrown at you kind of along the way I suppose yeah I think there's like some really important takeaways from that because there's so many really loud voices out there they'll be like you just say like no like for example from her story you're just gonna say no or no you're not gonna introduce me at 38 weeks but sometimes for self-preservation and to protect yourself physically and emotionally it's so important to go yeah but knowing full well that you're going to step away from that appointment yeah. and go, I'm not going. Like, yeah. You, but you but this is know. this is a thing. So you know, we talk a lot in um, we talk in hypnobirthing, we talk in like birth preparation about when we produce adrenaline, we have this response, this fight or flight response. There's actually a third part of this response, which I think is what we see more of. Like, it's very rare that you actually see anybody like get up and leave the labour ward when they're feeling afraid. We don't. I very rarely you see somebody argue with their midwife or doctor in labor. It's very rare. The third part of it is what we call fawn. And this is what we see. Like everybody that I meet that had a difficult experience first birth, I tell them about this and they're like, oh my God, that's what I did. I thought I was just really bad at advocating for myself. And it's not, it is um, an evolutionary survival response that our bodies go, I need to feel safe right now. I'm not looking forward into the future. I need to feel safe right now. And the way that we often feel safe right now is to feel like socially accepted and kind of emotionally safe. And that's when you like, you nod your head and you agree. And then you get to the end and you're like, why did I, why did I even agree? Why did did I nod my head? How did I say yes? And it's not that you're bad at advocating for yourself. It's not that you didn't ask enough questions. It is that your body was like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm," and it nodded before your brain even had anything to do with it. Like it's just a completely survival response. And that is going to trump everything. We're not thinking about, oh, how can I sort of make the best decisions to have the most positive birth experience here? We've now gone into survival. And that is a, exactly like you say, evolutionary. It's a biological, physiological response within the body. And that freeze, that freeze, you know, Louisa and I were really like nodding our heads, like really like um, the Winston Churchill dog. Uh, <laughs> we, we're like, we work with people who have experienced birth trauma. And often, heartbreakingly, what we hear is, 
it was me because I just said, yeah, and I just allowed it to happen. And I didn't stand up and I didn't fight for my rights. And it makes me so sad. Like I've got goosebumps even thinking it because like you need to understand that what you did in that moment was so normal, like so normal. You weren't at fault there. You were having a very human, normal reaction to the scenario that you found yourself in. You were just having a mammal, a mammalian response to the environment around you and you wanted to be safe and you wanted your little human to be safe too. So you did what you had to do at the moment in time. It's also, as someone who's pregnant and in labor, it is never, ever your job to go and pick a fight with someone and to stand up for yourself. Like this is why the majority of the work that we do in like think talking about like high risk, all of the preparation that you're going to do is antenatally because this is where you are. You are still vulnerable as a pregnant mammal, but you are not as vulnerable as you will be when you are in labor and your birth team has to be on the same page as you and spotting your birth team strengths and weaknesses, like whether you will need an advocate or someone to advocate for you or not. You need to know if they will be able to step up if you need to. And if they can't, that's fine. But who else can you bring in? Very much like you said, Megan, who else is going to be able to do that? Absolutely. And and you mentioned that like actually most of this is pregnancy, like most of this decision making, most of this learning, most of this planning is happening in pregnancy. But that that as as I just demonstrated with my story, that fawn thing can happen in pregnancy as well. Yeah. So yeah. just some like really top tips of like how to actually make a decision and like what you should do if you're presented with a decision and these will work for labor as well but probably even more so for pregnancy the first part of it and I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the podcast before but is talking about the nervous system when we're in that fight flight we're in what we call the sympathetic nervous system it's like our stress mode um and if somebody is has told you you have to have an induction or you have to do you have to be on a labor ward or whatever we we move if that's not what we wanted to hear we move into that stress mode when we are in this stress mode it's virtually impossible to make a rational decision so the first thing that we need to do is to move ourselves back into the calm part of our nervous system um and depending on how long you have got to, to do this um a really really simple thing is literally stopping and taking four really slow deep breaths and that in itself is going to stimulate the vagus nerve, which runs through our body, which li literally like activates the calm part of our nervous system. So if we can just pause, and this is a really good one for labor, like if you can just pause, don't ask anything, don't do anything, and just take a few deep breaths, it can be just enough to kind of move us into a place where we're like, okay, have I got any questions? Um, if it is during pregnancy, um, you already mentioned like writing down your questions before you get there, which I would wholeheartedly agree with. Um, also because that just gives us the confidence to actually ask them. Like if I'm staring you in the eye and you're a doctor um, and I was like, oh, I wanted to ask you this, but now I can't because I'm way too intimidated. You feel really powerful and I feel really vulnerable and I'm, it's fine. I didn't need to ask it anyway. And that's just where we go. And then we don't do it. If we go and at the end they go, did you have any more questions? And you're like, oh, yeah, actually, I've got three more written down on my bit of paper. So I'm just going to read them out. That you have already made the ability of asking questions like a hundred times easier just by writing them down. Similarly, on the writing down front, you can ask your midwife or your doctor to write down what it is they are recommending and why, or write down the answers to their questions. Or you can say, I'm just going to jot down what you're saying. Um, and again, this is just like a really sneaky way 
to just be sure that they're happy for what they are saying to be recorded, like formally recorded. Mm. Because sometimes, you know, I, I had a client recently who went to um, uh, an appointment, I think she was 40 weeks, she had an IVF pregnancy and they said um, that she needed to have an induction. And this was with an obstetrician. And she said, be oh, because she was now at a higher risk of stillbirth. And she said, can you let me know like what the actual risk of that happening is in comparison to somebody who didn't have an IVF pregnancy? And the doctor genuinely replied, oh, I don't know, but I know that 99 out of 100 women would just say yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, that's not a relevant statistic. When we're talking about relevant statistics, the fact that 99% of other people would say yes is absolutely not a relevant statistic. Now, if you had said to that doctor, okay, do you mind just writing that down for me? I can 100% guarantee they are not writing that down. On They're not getting that Because they no, know that right. that is not what they should be saying. <laughs> um, so it just really kind of gently pointedly can go like, okay, let's be sure we've all got the facts here. And it doesn't, it can, I would say, approach that from a place of like gentle curiosity, not like accusation, uh, and am I allowed to write this down? But like, oh, just so that I can remember, do you mind just like jotting down those key points in my notes? You might want to jot them down yourself because doctor's writing is notoriously impossible <laughs> to decipher. Um, but so jot down what they're saying. Then, the, particularly if it's something that is happening in pregnancy, get the hell out of there before you make a decision like when if you think about where in the world you feel you're most at ease you're most comfortable you're most confident is probably in like the privacy of your own home so if you are able to get back to your own house and this is even possible in like most like induction scenarios you know you go in because I don't know you've had reduced movements or your waters have broken or something and they say well we, we would recommend an induction now it is very very rare that it wouldn't be totally appropriate for you to be like okay well let me go home for an hour I'll think about it and I'll phone you up and let you know what I've decided um that's actually what I did in my first birth. I had an induction in my first birth and that was my very much my technique of like, all right, okay, let me go high. I'm going to go think about it like in my own space. And if you can get back to your own space, you think so much more clearly, so much more rationally. You're so much less intimidated or coerced or pushed or vulnerable. And then you can gather, do I have any more questions? If I'm saying yes, what are, what are my terms to saying yes? Like what is still important for me to kind of communicate? Um, and so that is possible in almost every pregnancy situation. If it was more of an urgent decision, like it was happening in labor and you probably weren't going to be, and you were giving birth in hospital and you weren't going to be going home, or if you were in labor at home and there was a midwife with you, just asking for them to step outside of the room or at least step away from you, get your head together with, partner your doula whoever it is that is supporting you and first of all just think first of all your four deep breaths second of all just thinking have we got any other questions that we want to know before we make the decision if you don't then go ahead and make your decision and just take a minute or two to allow that decision to settle to go right this is what we're doing now I'm going to get myself kind of comfortable with it, confident with it, make sure I'm able to tell them everything that I need them to know about this decision. And this is like, even in like, we think you should have an instrumental birth. You still almost always have time for that two minutes. Um, very rarely is anything kind of completely instant. Um, and that can do absolute wonders for making you feel more confident, more happy with the decision that you're making. And I guess the reason that we are talking about this 
today and that I suppose that the sort of overall aim that we all have all three of us have when we're supporting people to make these decisions during pregnancy is the difference that it then makes to how you feel about your birth so if you are right you can have two people on a bit of paper and I have supported tons of people that have been in both of these situations one of them has an induction of labor takes a long time ends in an unplanned cesarean they have birth trauma it was absolutely horrible they felt coerced pushed into it it wasn't something they ever want to repeat another person has an induction of labor it takes a few days it ends in an unplanned cesarean they come out the other side being like oh it's exactly what was supposed to happen i feel so positive and usually the difference between those two births is whether or not they were in charge of the decisions that were being made and it is literally as simple as that like if you are having an induction because you were given all of the information and you decided that it felt right and it felt right on this specific time in the future and that you were able to communicate what was important to you and yada 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 or you felt like you turned up at hospital one day and they told you that this is what you had to do now and you didn't get any choice and away you went and you got swept away with it and nobody told you that it might end in a cesarean or that it might take several days and you got to the other end and you were like oh oh my god what just happened to us the difference between those is so 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 important Mm -hmm. because the way that we experience birth influences everything like forever forever like I have I tell people my job and they're they're like 70 years old they they launch into their birth story and you're like wow this was like nearly 50 years ago and it's still that big in your head like anything that we can do to maintain control over the choices that are being made is like absolutely vital yeah yeah we we say this all the time it very rarely is a positive birth very rarely is like where the baby came out from like yeah it, it, it very much is how that person felt during their journey and if yeah. they felt like they were able to make the decisions that feel right for them at that moment in time that they felt supported and then that they felt informed the whole way through that's what gives people a positive birthing experience it isn't just like birthing at home with like fairy lights and just like not making a sound which sometimes social media makes you think that that's exactly what a positive birth looks like but it isn't it really really isn't and we feel so strongly about this so we are so glad that you brought that up as well because we agree we agree yeah I I know that we're all on the set we're all on the same page (laughs) yeah good (laughs) Because we are talking about risk, sometimes we're talking about the risk of potentially something happening because of circumstances that make you slightly more like, you know, more um, susceptible to that thing happening. And then that can potentially um, maybe open up different options of birth going in a way that you hadn't anticipated or intended, potentially. Um, I really think that it's important to raise sometimes the conversation is obviously very heavily weighted towards the risk of that potential thing maybe happening um but then on the flip side we don't talk about the risk of by doing this other thing that entails some risk and and a lot of people I think think about the one side of things and maybe don't think about the other thing so I just thought it was maybe important to raise oh absolutely and this is often just the bit that is like completely missing from the conversation like definitely around things like induction of labor but even things like antibiotics and like place of birth like all of the choices that we are making are going to be having an impact of some kind on the way that our birth is unfolding or on our baby or our kind of physical and emotional health 
Um, and so you probably already use this with your clients, but if anybody's listening and they haven't heard it, there's a really useful tool that's called using your brain. Um, and what we want to discover, if you can imagine brain like an acronym written down the side, um, the B stands for the benefits. So you want, and think of this part like a little box. You want to know what are the benefits of doing whatever it is that is being suggested to you. And also what are the benefits of not doing it? So let's use, I don't know, antibiotics as an example. What are the benefits of having antibiotics? Um, and you would assume, hopefully, that the reason they were being suggested was to either eliminate an infection or eliminate, reduce the risk of developing an infection. Um, and the benefits of not having antibiotics would be that the microbiome isn't disrupted. Um, it might alter if they're given by IV that you're baby might have to have an IV put into their hand or that you might have to have an IV in labor and that potentially could impact your place of birth choices which then may impact actually the interventions that you experience in birth the actual outcome of birth might be impacted by the place that you end up giving birth so that's the kind of benefits of of having it um, and then you also want to know what the risks are of having it which in some ways are kind of the diagonal opposite to the benefits of it so the risk of having antibiotics is that that microbiome might become disrupted, um, that you might need to spend a period of time in hospital, that you might your birthplace might be altered, all of that. Um, and what are the risks of not having antibiotics? You would assume in this situation that you maybe were then a very small, generally it's very small, slightly higher chance of developing an infection or your baby maybe at a slightly higher chance of developing an infection. But it's really important that all four of those boxes are, all four corners of that box are um, understood because very frequently you, you will be told the benefits of doing something and the risks of not doing it and then there's two very gaping holes in that box you know you'll be told you have to have an induction because of x y and z um and that will mean that your baby is born sooner and it will reduce the risk of that happening and if you don't have an induction this awful thing might happen and there is zero conversation of like, yes, and an induction might not work. It might take several days. It might end in an unplanned cesarean. It could impact, increase the chances of an instrumental birth, it, which in turn might damage your pelvic floor, which in turn might upset your baby, which in turn might disrupt their feeding journey. Like none of that is even vaguely mentioned. Um, and so we really, really need that full picture in terms of what are the risks that you're trying to avoid and what are the risks of the thing that is being offered to prevent it and it's also even worth asking the question is there any evidence to say that the thing you're offering is actually going to reduce the risks of it because something like an IVF pregnancy for example we do see slightly higher rates of stillbirth in an IVF pregnancy but they're before 37 weeks so is an induction at 40 weeks going to reduce this chance no, there isn't any evidence. There is no evidence at all to say that that would reduce the outcome. But in our brain, when we don't have all that picture, we go, oh, OK. So obviously, if the baby's born, that must reduce the risk. Um, and But equally, there are situations where an induction of labour or a cesarean really very, very helpfully will. If you have got severe preeclampsia and you are very, very unwell and your blood pressure is completely uncontrollable and the only way to stop that from potentially being quite harmful for you or for your baby is for your baby to be born, then an induction of labour or cesarean birth still carry risks with them, but you may feel like, oh, actually, it feels much, much, much more worth it because the risk of being pregnant now actually feel much much higher and it feels totally appropriate for my baby to be born so 
that's the kind of the B and the R of the brain. The A stands for alternatives. And again, similarly, there will always be something else you can do. Probably quite a lot of other things that you can do. And we won't necessarily be told what they are unless we ask. So, you know, you've been told you need an induction because you're 41 weeks pregnant. And sometimes it's presented as, well, either you have the induction or you don't have the induction. That's your options. And actually in there, there is like a wealth of options. Okay, actually, you could have an induction at a later date. Actually, you could ask for a scan. Actually, you could ask for monitoring. Like there's so many things. Actually, you could ask for a stretch and sweep. Actually, you could ask for an induction much later along the line. Actually, you could say, I don't want an induction. I would like a planned cesarean. Like all of those things are like the gray area in between of alternatives. Um, the I in brain stands for instinct, and we undervalue this as women in the modern world. Like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like you should do? Do you feel happy and healthy? And like, this information is coming absolutely out of nowhere. Does it feel like mm, something's just not quite right? I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but I feel like I want to do something. Um, and that is really important. And we have had, what, how old are we? 20, 30, 40 years of like not listening <laughs> not listening to our instinct not listening to our yeah. intuition not believing it being told to completely ignore it um and can take a bit of practice like during pregnancy is a really good time to practice it really just lean into what your body is telling you to do um so instinct is don't don't be like oh yeah and then there's instinct on this that part's irrelevant like it is also really really valuable and i cannot tell you how many times I have supported women and you guys probably too, where they have just said like, actually this doesn't feel right. Or I just feel like I need to do something. And then you get the baby comes out and in hindsight, you can go, oh, it's because, and then you get like the rational explanation for what has happened. But they, they knew like, and so many times women are like, oh no, but it feels like the baby's going to come really soon. And people are like, oh no, but you're only having two contractions in 10 minutes and your cervix is only two centimeters dilated. And then they're like, oh. <laughs> the baby comes out and you're like oh I wonder who knew here I wonder who knew what was happening the best probably the person that has had this baby in their body for the entire pregnancy so that is very very valuable um, and the n in brain stands for nothing and that is what if literally what if I do nothing and that will very much depend on what the decision is that you're making but it's nothing in terms of time so that might be what if we like just don't have a scan or what if we don't make this decision today? What if we make this decision in a week? Or what if we don't do this intervention now? What if we wait, I don't know, an hour a day, a week? That will very much depend. You're not going to wait a week to have an instrumental birth, but you might wait an hour yeah. to consider an instrumental birth. Um, an hour is probably not going to make much difference if you're deciding about whether or not to have an induction, but a day or a week potentially might be. Um, and so just thinking about the kind of the timing of things that are offered is also really, really important. Um, but that is like a really helpful kind of first line tool. But yeah, absolutely. We're weighing up the risk that we are being told we have with the the risk that will exist with literally every single intervention even me telling you what position to be in has some potential downside attached to it um some things more than others but yeah definitely worth thinking about and taking into account when we're making decisions megan thank you so so much you provided so much um Oh, well, I've just personally bloody loved chatting to you. I think we could go all day, couldn't we? <laughs> well, probably for weeks, you know, like how long could I record this for? Um, but 
Uh, I know that so many listeners are going to find this really, really helpful because this is the crux for a lot of people in their, you know, their journeys of like, you know, understanding how birth works is one thing, understanding the tools and techniques is another thing, but it's, you know, navigating uh, decisions, navigating the things that can crop up. That is really what makes a difference. And so, yeah, just so, so much valuable information here. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up or, or that we've missed or anything before we... I don't think so. I think just that like the final sort of tip bit is that sometimes you can hear impassioned conversations like this and be like, oh my God, this is like, it's too, it's too much for me. Um, And you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Like, I think that's the hopefully reassuring thing is that you, there might be things that you're like, do you know what? I don't really care. Like, I don't really care if I have a vaginal examination. I don't really care about whether I have an injection for the placenta to be born, whatever it is. But if there are like specific things that are really important to you and it will be so different from person to person, then focus your energy on on those decisions and those things. And if there are things that you don't have an opinion on, that is also completely, completely fine. You don't have to become like a complete um, birth fanatic just now. I mean, you probably are interested if you're listening, if you're still listening an hour. <laughs> still <laughs> an hour in. But, um, but, but yeah, if there, it's, it's focusing your energy where you feel like it is best spent. Yeah, yeah. such a good, such a good takeaway. <laughs> Boss bitch bin, everybody gather in. It's time to point out bullshit that we think to be a sin. So Prago's Buffer's parents, everybody needs a win while we throw some stupid shit in the boss bitch bin. I I know that you've said that you've listened to our podcast before, so you may or may not know what's coming, but we have a feature <laughs> at the end of each episode, which is called uh, Boss Bitch Bin. So we would love to invite you to, if you have anything, Throw it in the boss bitch bin. Oh my god, I have so many things that I want to throw in the bin. Oh, what shall I? What shall I throw in the bin? I think I will throw the assumption that people will give birth on a label ward in the bin, like that. That is the default, and anything that anybody that doesn't do that is stepping away from the default. I would change the default to out of hospital birth, and then anybody that needs it goes into hospital anybody that wants it goes into hospital um but labor ward being the default is would be my throw it in the bin amongst five thousand million other things that i would also throw in the bin (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard to pick one isn't it it's so hard Uh, but i love that yeah yeah absolutely why does there have to be the default why can't it be you start you if you're choosing to engage with the nhs why can it be that you start at home and then you can go anywhere from that? If you start yeah. here, you can go anywhere else. Yeah, and that's, that's what it was in the 90s. The midwife came to my mum at home before she decided to go to hospital. Like that was where triage took place. You knew the midwife. Oh, imagine. Dreamy. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Anything oh. other than that can get in the bin. Yeah, basically. Get it in the bin. In the boss bitch bin. Thank you so much, Megan. Oh, no, it was really fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for talking Berthy with us once again this week. We absolutely loved recording this episode for you guys. Another huge thank you to our very special guest, Megan, for coming and talking Berthy with us this week. 
All of Megan's details and the resources mentioned in today's episode can be found in the show notes. Please go over and check them out. If you're loving what you're hearing on the pod, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcast from because it means the absolute world to us, but it also helps get this information out there to a wider audience. And if you want to feature in future episodes of the podcasts, you can leave us a voice note. The link to our voice note is in the show notes. If you want to find out about our downloadable individual pick and mix workshops and our doula services, including Pocket Doula, head over to www.newbirthclub.com. And if you really want to show us a token of your appreciation for providing this pod to you, you can now buy us a coffee. The link to our buy us a coffee page is in the show notes and any caffeine is greatly appreciated. We'll talk to you next week. Lovely. That is just fucking beautiful.